invite you to remain standing and listen to this portion of the story of God as it is written in the library that birthed hope from the first chapter of Matthew's gospel. Now the birth of of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will bring his people deliverance from all sin and rebellion. This would bring the prophet's embryonic sermon to full term. As Isaiah said, watch for this. A virgin will get pregnant and bear a son. They will name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Then Joseph woke up. He did exactly as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took Mary as his wife, but he did not consummate the marriage until she had the baby. He named the baby Jesus. The story of God told for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. For a large part of my childhood, my father served as a federal magistrate, which is a judge. Although who my dad is has never been limited to his occupation, the fact that he was a judge certainly framed my reality when I was growing up. For example, I learned that he had a special button under his bench that sounded a silent alarm outside the courtroom and caused federal marshals to come into the courtroom with their guns drawn. Unfortunately, I learned that truth after having pushed the button. I also knew when the FBI came to my house to get his signature on a warrant that my job was to keep quiet and stay out of the way which I presumed was so they wouldn't be tempted to arrest me. For my younger sister, however, how she understood my father's occupation had an even more dramatic impact on how she saw the world. She was very young when my father was appointed. Beginning around the age of five, the fact that my father was a judge was the first thing she seemed to understand about his job, and that job lasted throughout her childhood. If you haven't been around a five- or six-year-old lately, let me remind you that these people can cut to the chase. They are capable of sizing things up and ordering their world with extreme focus and clarity. So, in that spirit, my younger sister would introduce herself to people by saying, my daddy is a judge and he kills people. Talk about bringing focus and clarity. Now, while the parent in me appreciates how this was certainly an effective technique for setting relational tone and boundaries, the reality is her conclusion was not accurate. The way she framed my father was off. That wasn't really who he was. It wasn't really what was going on at all. Her intentions may have been pure or immaculate, but she had somehow missed it. Friends, when we listen to the birth narrative of Jesus found in the Gospel of Matthew, the story that many of us have heard hundreds of times, the story about Joseph and Mary, the betrothed couple with a scandalous pregnancy, 
the story about the coming of the Christ in the form of a human baby, I have to wonder, is the way we have framed this story off. Are the conclusions we have drawn from this story accurate? Might we be missing it? To be honest, there's a lot of information in the eight short verses of this story. Moreover, as 21st century Westerners, we don't usually have 1st century Israelite context and consciousness at the ready, so if we've lost the path a bit, that seems at the very least to be understandable. What you've been told about this story is anything like what I've been told, then you've been invited to reduce this story to only literal history, a simple recording of the facts of the immaculate conception and birth of Jesus as proof of his his divine identity, which is a fascinating idea, but it's also proven to be a confusing idea. In recent history, the most common conclusion drawn from this story is that Jesus must be divine because of the immaculate conception, that he is Christ because he was born of a virgin. To 21st century Westerners like us, the immaculate conception and birth may appear to simply be historical details, but friends, whether we can admit it or not, such literal conclusions have birthed numerous confusing ideas for us about purity and morality and marriage, not to mention the alienating idea that the conception and birth of Jesus the Christ needed somehow to remain above the dirtiness of humanity. But that's not the story we have. That's not the God of the Bible. Jesus didn't remain above the dirtiness of humanity. He embodied it. If the goal was to separate the holy from the mundane, then being born in a manger surrounded by livestock sure seems out of place. In his book, The Universal Christ, Father Richard Rohr writes, humans prefer to see things in anecdotal and historical parts, even when such a view leads to incoherence, alienation, or hopelessness. Friends, As challenging as this may be to hear, I need to invite you to consider the possibility that there is more going on in this story than a small, literal, immaculate history of proving that Jesus was God. But here's the good news. We are invited to move away from smaller, incoherent, literal conclusions towards larger, universally wondrous and hopeful questions. This is, of course, not to say that Jesus wasn't conceived by the Holy Spirit or that Mary wasn't a virgin or that Jesus is not God. Rather, it is to confess that Matthew, the disciple who composed this gospel in the mid-70s CE, some 40 years after the crucifixion of Jesus, wasn't even born when the conception and birth of Jesus occurred. It is to confess that Matthew writes his gospel to a community of first century Jewish Christ followers trying to determine what it looks like to live their faith in the face of enormous change and conflict. 
These people did not need to be convinced that Jesus was the Christ. They were living that reality. It is to confess that there is more going on in the Scripture in our sacred stories than the recording of history. A possible clue to that reality in Matthew's Gospel is that Joseph, the husband of Mary, is not the first Joseph in Scripture to receive divine instruction through a dream. The final 14 chapters of Genesis provide the story of another Joseph. In the longest and most detailed story in the entire book of Genesis, we are told the story of Joseph, the son of Jacob, you know, the one with the technicolor dream coat. Joseph, who received and interpreted numerous divine dream instructions. Joseph, the one whose brothers referred to him as the dreamer. Joseph, who ends up in a position of power and authority in Egypt. Joseph, the ancient Israelite, who according to the genealogy of Matthew's gospel, is an ancestor of Joseph, the betrothed of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Two Josephs, same name, both facing great change and conflict, both receiving divine instruction in dreams, both eventually winding up in Egypt as a result of following those dreams. Friends, this is not just a coincidence. This is unmistakable. This is known in Hebrew as a remez, a directional arrow or hint that points to another story. This is how the story of God works when we let it burying beauty on top of meaning in layer after layer after layer. N.T. Wright says it this way. Matthew is not asking his audience to take this story all by itself. He is asking his audience to see this story in the light of the entire history of Israel. Hearers of Matthew's birth narrative are being asked to bring the ancient story of Joseph, the dreamer of Genesis, to mind as they receive the story about the birth of Christ. Now, lest we think that Mary is going to get lost in all these layers of Joseph found in Matthew's gospel, biblical theologian and scholar Eugene Boring reminds us that this emphasis on Joseph is not a reflection of patriarchal culture or misogyny. In fact, Matthew's genealogy of Jesus testifies to the role of five women in the appearance of the Christ, and Mary most certainly plays the essential human role in the birth of the Christ. But this, this is where the needle scratches off the record for me. Dr. Boring states, the modest role assigned to Mary in this story shows that this narrative is not a birth story, but an illustration of a central problem faced by Matthew's community. There it is. Dr. Boring, whose name is certainly not descriptive of what he's asking us to consider, says the fact that Mary is not featured heavily in this story tells us that this is not a birth story. Story. Our friend Dr. Alexander John Shia agrees, writing, Matthew is telling a story of faith 
and faith tested, not a biography of Jesus. His focus on Joseph is on a person faced with a great dilemma. And let's be honest. We don't talk about the great dilemma Joseph and Mary faced very often when we talk about this story. We may nod in its general direction, but we don't want to be immodest and impolite with the implications of a young betrothed virgin being pregnant before she is married. We tend to just metaphorically pat Joseph on the back and say, attaboy Joseph, way to take one for the team. Now be quiet and get back in your place between the donkey and the manger. We don't usually address the very particular scandal that Mary and Joseph face in the conception and birth of this Christ child with great specificity. But Matthew sure does. Matthew has no problem talking specifics, which is kind of odd when we remember he wasn't even born when this story took place, and he doesn't write about it until 70 years later. Matthew shares extremely specific and intimate details about Joseph's thoughts, Joseph's dreams, and the relationship between Joseph and Mary, both before the conception and before the birth of Jesus. These are specifically odd and private pieces of information. Why tell your audience this stuff? What is all that specific information supposed to communicate? Contrary to how we may have interpreted this in the past, I would invite you to consider the possibility that these details have nothing to do with the dirtiness of our flesh or the holiness of chastity. I would invite you to consider the possibility that these intimate details in Matthew's narrative exist to drive home one singular point. Joseph is not the father of Jesus. No way, no how, that's it. No matter how we may try to explain it away, what the narrative narrator of this gospel is telling us is there is no possible way that Joseph was Jesus' dad. Matthew is telling us that cover-up was not an option, that Joseph and Mary could not explain this scandal away. And friends, we can all agree that given our day and age, these circumstances might not seem so scandalous to us, but to Joseph and Mary... And to the ancient audience receiving this story, this was an extremely not immaculate scandal. Mary and Joseph were betrothed, which in first century Palestine was much more binding than modern Western engagements. The betrothal was formalized in a contract and could only be ended by death or divorce. Betrothed couples were referred to as husband and wife, and should one of them die, the survivor was recognized as a widow or a widower. To ratchet up the seriousness of this even further, the religious and cultural systems to which Mary and Joseph belonged provided very specific and strict consequences for infidelity. According to scriptural laws in the Torah, Mary could be put to death for her scandalous pregnancy. At the very least, she was to be divorced and shamed, and Joseph was to be offered restitution for his losses. In this time and place and culture, Mary's pregnancy was life-threatening. 
It was, as Shia calls it, a situation for which the culture demanded action. Joseph and Mary must adhere to the accepted customs. For Joseph and Mary to ex- for Joseph to accept Mary and deviate from the accepted norms would cause shunning by the entire tribe, a shame that would forever taint the family name and lineage. With that context, can we recognize why? Can we recognize Joseph's initial decision to dismiss Mary quietly? Can we relate to it? I sure can. It's a response that lies somewhere on the spectrum between religious conviction and avoiding humiliation. A spectrum that I am way too comfortable blurring in my own life. But then an angel of the Lord shows up and wrecks Joseph's plans to keep things quiet. Instead of quietly surrendering to cultural and religious rule, Joseph is instructed and invited to step into the dilemma and join Mary in the middle of the scandal. The angel says, accept Mary and her coming child, a child that is not your own. Extend that child your family name, the name of King David. Name that child. Raise him as your own. The unwritten part of that message is, in so doing, submit yourself to being judged and condemned. Submit yourself to being cut off from the religious and cultural systems that will most certainly denounce you. This is the divine instruction and invitation. This is the great dilemma of Matthew's birth narrative of the Christ. This is the same dilemma faced by the original dreaming Joseph in Genesis. This is the same dilemma faced by Joseph's great-grandparents, Abraham and Sarah. Rabbi Nachum Ward Lev describes our forebears, Abraham and Sarah, as signing up for a journey of cultural vertigo, being stripped naked of the belief systems that have provided meaning and cosmic order. Now, generations later, Joseph and Mary are signing up for the same journey, a journey undertaken by their ancestors, a dilemma faced by all the biblical people Matthew lists in his genealogy of Jesus just before this story. Can we see why Matthew might open his gospel with a story like this? This dilemma, this journey of cultural vertigo, the scandal of being stripped naked of the belief systems that had previously provided meaning and safety and security runs throughout the biblical story. It's a scandal that Matthew, the tax collector, knows all too well. It's a dilemma to which the Christ speaks even from the womb. It's a journey that Jesus the Christ will live out for us, showing us the way in the coming pages of the gospel. It's universal. Anyone who truly wrestles with the divine will face this dilemma. Anyone who remains open to the inner messages, to the dreams of God, will confront this scandal 
any keeper of the way, any follower of the Christ will undertake this journey. If we transcend the law, we will be accused by others and perhaps even by ourselves of rejecting the Bible and tradition. We will face cultural vertigo. We will be invited to leave comfortable and predictable forms behind for something much more formless. We will find ourselves torn between the Egypts that have sustained us and the wondrous wilderness to which we are called. Joseph and Mary stand at the beginning of Matthew's gospel as a model for the tensions, tension all disciples will face. The tension between the prevailing understanding and the new thing that Christ is doing. To quote Shia once more, the invitation is clear. We must stay open to the inner messages of God. It is important that neither our inner assumptions nor the demands of our culture and tradition impede us from moving forward with God. It will not be easy. It would be much simpler to quietly dismiss the conflict and not move forward. But hear these proclamations from Matthew's gospel. Receive the reality of the new thing being birthed in the darkest hour. You shall name him Jesus, which means God will deliver us. They shall call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Whatever comes next, it is not the end of us. God will deliver us. And it won't happen from afar either because we don't journey alone. God is with us right here, right now. You know, when we release the story at the beginning of Matthew's gospel from the confines of small, incoherent, literal conclusions and hold it as a larger, universally wondrous and hopeful question, it even makes the story that immediately follows it much more fascinating. Joseph and Mary face the dilemma, risking cultural vertigo and leaving behind the religious and cultural resources that had previously sustained them. And when they do, do we recognize what happens next? Visitors arrive from the east with unexpected gifts. God will deliver us. God is with us. And unexpected gifts will arise from unexpected places and unexpected people as we walk out our journey with the Christ. That may not sound immaculate, but it sure sounds like good news.